It's kind of strange that this most elemental aspect of our experience, body, the thing with the, the aspect of experience that we can most easily find. Pay attention to your sense of yourself as you sit here. Oh yeah, being here is physical, visceral. The physicality of our existence is completely undeniable. It's completely immediate. It's completely obvious. It's right here. So it's kind of strange that it seems to need a lot of practice. A lot of training, a lot of going wrong, a lot of forgetting, a lot of getting caught up in all kinds of strange ideas in order to get close, get closer and closer and closer and closer to the fullness of this viscerality, this physical immediacy. So whether you've been engaged in this endeavor to honor and inhabit the visceral immediacy of bodily life for about 20 hours or 20 years or more, that's always an ongoing process. I think that's important, especially if you're a little nearer the 20-hour end of the spectrum. If you're nearer the 20-year end of the spectrum, you've hopefully at least got that now, that this is probably going to be an ongoing process. But it's maybe helpful to hear if you're newer to meditation. Because the easily the idea is there that I, I should... Somebody said to me this morning, but that I who was on their first retreat, but I should have got it by now. <laughs> oh yeah? So here we are, you know, honoring this truth that our experience is a visceral one and orientating towards the viscerality, the uh the physical immediacy of our experience and here we are noticing all the ways in which we sort of we turn to that and then we kind of bounce off it bounce away into some story about anything at all past, present or future or some story about what this is some story about breath some story about body etc So I thought I'd take this time to just offer a, a few reflections about how come. A few reflections about what's, what's in the way. Because like I said, it's strange, given the, the undeniability of our physical existence. What is it? What gets in the way? 
One of the things that gets in the way is the sense of thingness that we attribute to body. The tendency to think of the body as a thing. And a thing, anything that we attribute thingness to, means we make it kind of fixed, solid, unchanging. And of course we know in an abstract sense, of course we know that body changes. But knowing it in an abstract sense really doesn't help us. Now sometimes Buddhists get excited. Occasionally Buddhists get excited. But sometimes Buddhists get excited when science seems to accord with uh, Buddhist understanding, for example. So if you're one of those excitable Buddhists, you may have gotten excited with the idea, you know, when uh, science points out the, the fact that cells are always changing. And we say, oh, look, all of our cells are renewed every seven years, etc., etc. <laughs> but so what? It really, really, really doesn't help to know that. Any kind of abstract knowing about the fact that our bodies change doesn't help. I mean, you've probably got photographs of when you were a child, right? You know, there's no, no connection. But if that's... So we've, we've really got plenty of the abstract sense that body doesn't have thingness. That it's process rather than thing. But even though the abstract understanding may be there, unless we attend to the, the, our, the kind of instinctual way that we constantly bypass that uh, abstract understanding, unless we pay attention to that, we don't really get un- underneath the tendency toward thingness. So as we focus in our practice over these days, we get a chance to get underneath that quality of thingness. Again, in actually quite an undeniable way, but it's an invitation to us to actually pay attention to the non-thingness, to the sense of process. Body as, what we were calling earlier this afternoon, this dance of sensation and vibration. this constant change so that we can get used to it. When we, as we get used to it so that we can actually live more fluidly. So we can live with the reality of body as ever-changing process. So that we're not actually surprised when body ages or gets sick, or uh, bits fall off. I mean, not dramatic bits, but, you know, like hair thinning and falling out. Because that's what the, the illusion of thingness gets us very agitated about that kind of thing. You know? 
just uh, just had lunch today with a with a good friend who who I first met in a monastery in Thailand about 24 years ago, and he now lives near here, and we get to see each other not very often. So I just saw him for the first time in three or four years. First thing he said to me, "Wow, you're so grey." <laughs> yeah. What do you expect, right? What do I expect? And the pressure, the, uh, the for often for women is even greater around aging. And partly this is like a, a lot of cultural pressure. There. Again, someone I, I know well, I noticed when she looks in the mirror, she has a tendency to do that, as if in the illusion of being able to defy gravity. So I was encouraging her the reminder that hey, you're never going to be as young ever again as you are today. You're never going to be as raven-haired as you are today. It's wrinkles, thinning, graying, sagging from here on. (laughs) And that's actually a really great support. I'm offering there. It depends when we look. If we look, if we project that forwards to the sagging, wrinkly thing, it can seem rather morbid or depressing or something. But in the right now, it's like thisness. That truth, this right now, this is as good as it gets from here on in. Miss this moment? Oh, I just missed the moment of as young as I was ever going to be. <laughs> this is as young as you're ever going to be. And this, this youngness is in flux, in movement, in process. So b- both in the, in the actual embodying of the truth of that, moment by moment, the way bodies constantly alive changing and in our reflections when you when you find yourself uh, conceiving of body as thing conceiving in terms of uh, stasis thingness as if even though we wouldn't say it philosophically we'd trot out the thing about uh, cells changing every year every seven years but regardless of that, when, you, when you're making the kind of assumption, and the assumptions that are largely unconscious, and yet that become more and more conscious as we pay attention, when you notice yourself making the assumption of body as thing, that the invitation of our practice to reflect in such a way that you again and again pull the rug out from underneath that seeming certainty which turns out actually to be an absurdity. Absurd, actually, that we keep relating to this body as if it was a thing, when all the evidence constantly is to the contrary. And the, we can often get a, a sense of the thingness in terms of our, the, the images we have of ourselves. 
images, the self-image, body image, is also something that really gets in the way of us inhabiting this visceral immediacy. Images of ourselves that are often very out of date. We might just reflect. How do you, how do you see yourself? I once did an exercise a long time ago now with a teacher that encouraged us, and there was a, a kind of whole setup around the exercise, but to draw ourselves and our own body image, and it doesn't matter whether one has any skill in drawing or not, because it was very instructive, it was actually kind of shocking to me, how I drew myself. I drew myself my art with huge arms, <laughs> and nothing going on here. And initially I thought that was because of my you know, lack of proportion, the drawing skill. But actually it was very instructive to see how I, was, how I identified with the sense of body in terms of its capacity to do. And it was all about arms and hands and the productions of self. And the core was kind of puny in this picture I'd drawn. Often our self-image, our body image, is of a, a younger version of ourselves. Sometimes a body image, and of course it changes, right, from situation to situation. But you know those situations where you feel smaller or younger. A gap between the actual reality and the internalized image. The gap wherein some part of our self-image has gotten frozen. Ossified. And the invitation then to explore how come. How come when in certain kinds of situation I feel about six years old? How come? chance to reflect what happened when I was six in a similar situation to this you know sometimes as people get older and they say as if it's a, as if it's a great thing well I still feel 21 I think really You know, it's a kind of, it's sort of become, it's become a kind of, a, it's a very culturally validated thing that when you're in your 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s, that it's a great thing to still, to, but I still feel as if I'm 21 or whatever age. That's just a delusion. <laughs> and, but it said as if, well, I'm very kind of uh, free in myself because I still feel very young. Yeah, but hello. <laughs> the freeing up of internalized self-images doesn't replace one for a for a, a younger, better, deluded version. And actually, it frees up the sense of self-image, and so that the self-image is actually ageless. 
that's much closer to the truth of this. We spoke about awareness this, uh, sometime today or yesterday as beginningless and endless. And just as you sit now in the immediacy of experience, is age relevant? And so, meeting our experience in this way, we learn the, the, the truth. And to inhabit the truth freely, that body is aging. Ossifying, wrinkling, sagging, putrefying. <laughs> Not quite yet putrefying, maybe. But. And yet, at the same time, the animation of body, the experience of body, the, uh, the inhabiting of body, ageless, timeless, immediate. And this practice that we're doing, this coming to immediacy, this training ourselves in immediacy, this uh, honouring immediacy, this landing in immediacy, this, this uh, opening up of the immediacy of things, starts to free up the ossification of awareness. The identification of awareness with a, a fixed thing called self, called who I am. Body as thing, self as thing, life as a collection of things colliding with each other, negotiating with each other, avoiding each other. There, there are three kind of specific movements, we might say movements of avoidance, Three, yeah, three ways that we avoid the truth of what's happening, typically. And despite cultural and historical evolution over thousands of years, it seems like the same three movements of avoidance that the Buddha spoke about are exactly the same three movements of avoidance that we find in our own consciousness. Buddha speaks about them as greed, hatred and delusion. I tend to try and speak about them in slightly retranslating those terms. I mean, those, of course, aren't the actual words he used, but the, the scholarly translations make them rather uh, kind of fixed terms. Greed sounds like a, a thing. So trying to get underneath the thing there, so try to speak about them in terms that suggest the, the kind of the way we experience the movements, those movements of avoidance. Greed as the movement of a kind of the movement towards a sense of demand, getting, having, obtaining, wanting. The movement of what the Buddha calls <coughs> hatred, movement away from, movement of resisting, refusing, denying, defending. And what the tradition refers to as delusion, the movement of going unconscious. Avoiding, distracting, 
And we can see those movements, sort of the shorthand for those, mm. demand, defense, distraction. Right? Towards, away from, and pew, I'm just getting lost. You can see those, and you can see what your movement of choice may be when it comes to relating to body. Some of us, it's more the, uh, the sort of obsessing around body. Oh, the assumption that I ought to be able to make body perfect. Good luck. Right? The, the illusion of perfect health. Some of us get very caught up in the illusion of perfect health or perfect fitness. And we might not call it perfect. But again, if we get get underneath the abstract understanding, the sense that my body should be a certain way. And then we get very, uh, then we get rather bewildered or upset or reactive when it's not like that. When we have less than optimum fitness or less than optimum health or less than optimum beauty, etc., and the, the kind of, you know, it's basically the n- a neurotic way of trying to, of relating to body as if it ought to be better than this. Very painful, actually. To be constantly feeling like this needs me to do something different with it, be a, way, a different way with it, have different attributes to it. And of course we do that. These three movements aren't just about body, they're about all our experience. But as we're looking through the lens of body at the moment, just to see how we notice that. Of course, the, the kind of archetype of that sort of improvement are those glossy magazines. You know, that like Cosmopolitan. Or, there's more of them for women, I think, but men's health. And all that kind of bikini body, ripped, abs, airbrushed bullshit. <laughs> now there's that great line from a song some years ago. Don't read beauty magazines. They'll only make you feel ugly. And when you, we go down that road of trying to perfect our body or our bodily experience, there's no end to it because body's unperfectible. It's too fluid. I remember seeing a documentary a few years ago, and now actually there's lots of them. This was quite a few years ago. When it was an unusual documentary. Now there's uh, <coughs> BBC Three. You know BBC Three? It's endless documentaries about strange body stuff. Embarrassing bodies, fat bodies, uh, uh, compulsive, this bodies, all kinds of... It's like a kind of national fascination. <laughs> like freak shows for Victorians. Anyway digress a little bit 
But I remember seeing a, a, a documentary quite a few years ago about uh, teenage girls in America having uh, their noses uh, improved. And, it was, and I remember seeing this girl of 16 or 17, I think, and she said, I remember the line, she was waiting to go into the surgery, and she says, people think, think I'm vain, but I'm not vain, I just want to be happy. And she was so convinced. She'd just been going through a catalogue, choosing from a, an array of possible noses. So convinced that it was going to do it. And one couldn't help just feeling for her in advance. When eventually she was confronted with the inevitable truth that the different shape of her nose wasn't going to do it. So to engage with body, as well as uh, this practice of just coming back to the visceral immediacy like we do, as we attend to it, we start to open up all these different layers, the layers of our assumptions, of our reactions, of our habits, of our views, of our history with body. And of course, that, that sort of demanding, perfecting, obsessing view of body that's very much supported in our culture. The kind of uh, the the sort of uh, the what's the word? Idealizing of youth and beauty and thinness and all that stuff. But some of us might notice a tendency in the other direction, the more the negating of body, the Defending against the idea of body, the uh, sounds like a strong word, but the hatred of body, and the archetype of that is the sort of actually a lot of spiritual traditions have that. It's like there's some kind of, and whether we look to the traditions or whether we look at our own responses, there's something about seeing the danger and the, and the delusion and the obsessiveness of, of what we were just talking about before, of that demanding way of relating to body, and then goes the other way. The archetype of, you know, the kind of the monks in hair shirts, or the, flagella- the self-flagellation which a lot of traditions uh, get into or in one or other way. And the Buddha kind of had these stories, I don't know if you've ever seen the image of the fasting Buddha just before he kind of quit that stuff, but he spent six years you know, like fasting and torturing himself in different ways. With the idea that he could transcend body, get away from body, get away from all this, this, this messy, smelly, shitty, pissy thing towards some spiritual transcendence. And then, but realizing that actually just made him weak and unhappy. And of course, you know, there's plenty of modern archetypes of that kind of torturing ourselves. Seeing on the forms that you wrote, some of you writing about history with eating disorders which one can also see as an expression of that. No, just uh, the difficulty with body. 
And just as we get as we get closer, as we invite ourselves to inhabit bodily experience, and seeing those movements, the movement of trying to make our experience perfect in some way, physical experience, but also meditation experience, or meeting our experience through the lens of wrongness, of feeling it's wrong, it's not okay like this, it shouldn't be like this. A kind of harshness with the way we come in to our bodily experience, a harshness with the way we come back from having been caught up somewhere. Now that emphasis I've been given on just simply coming back, gently coming back. And I know, because I know myself, I heard that instruction so many times for so many years. And I just somehow didn't hear the gently part. Didn't hear the simply part. I somehow thought the person had said, grab hold of your attention and wrench it back to the present and beat it for having gone away somewhere. (laughs) I know my teachers never told me that. But that was my translation. Oh, I shouldn't be so. Oh, I shouldn't be present. What's the matter with me? Why can't I? So we get to confront that. We get to confront our, our hatred. I mean, like I say, it sounds, it's painful. It's tragic. Even to say the word is tragic and painful. But to confront our hatred of body, our hatred, our fear, our resistance to inhabiting experience, as if to inhabit this where I am will be a wrong thing, uh, a scary thing, a terrible thing. There's only one way to find out. But that finding out has to be a gentle finding out, a patient finding out. A kind finding out. It's like daring. Little by little daring to be here. And for some of us, that just daring a little bit. And daring a little bit is very, very important in the way that we practice. And so sensing for yourself, if you know there's that tendency towards a harshness or a rejection... Use the gentleness with your body. It's also a way of rediscovering a kind of enjoyment of our body. The amazing sensuality of body. And some of these dried up, uptight spiritual traditions, they really get lost around sensuality. It's like there's a sort of fear of what I was speaking earlier, of the kind of uh, obsessive thing around body. And seeing how, of course, that can really reinforce the identification with body. But it's every much as bit a reactive pattern to try and uh, get away from that. It's just as painful. You know, this... this so much bodily is can be so much about enjoying. Like we were saying in the walking meditation, enjoying the sensuality of what we're seeing. 
enjoying the sensuality of what we're eating. Enjoying the sensuality of taking a shower. You know, you might notice when you're taking a shower, just how you how are you washing your body? How are you washing your body? On retreat, that's about as much sensual delight as we get. (laughs) (laughs) But we can also see in the other realms of our life, other realms of bodily life, like sex. You know, could definitely get really uh, obsessive. But also, we can see in the spiritual traditions have a, have a lot of history of going the other direction from obsessive to negating. As if there's something wrong. And again, we have to see for ourselves. As if there's something wrong with enjoying sensuality. With opening to sensuality. With having the fullness of, an, of bodily experience. Of an embodied experience. Freedom is an embodied experience. I rarely use this word because I don't like it. I'll put my fingers in my ears when I say it. Enlightenment is a visceral experience. We think of liberation, enlightenment, uh, realization, uh, something. We think of some kind of spiritual opening as something happening you know, in the ether, like all those posters in uh, those magazines, like Kindred Spirit, you know, with colors and... <laughs> you know. Uh, it's something very ethereal. But we're not ethereal. We're, we're, this is where your life's happening. When things free up in our lives, they free up in our body, in our physical experience. And so the third way, so the demanding, the defending, and then the distracting, the tendency to just check out of being here. And someone was speaking this morning about you know sleepy mind. And sometimes that can come, like we were saying, as a result of just, we're so used to stimulating our attention that when there's no stimulation, there's no point being around, it seems. Or maybe more accurate to say, we're used to a kind of gross level of stimulation. And so that we're not able to stay around to find the subtleties of what's happening. When we enter into the subtleties of what's happening, they, they magnify. If we're just used to gross stimu- the stimulation of getting, having, doing, becoming, consuming our experience, then sitting and breathing just feels really dull. And yet, when we actually attune... When we, when we know the breath in the breath, when we get inside our experience, wow, the sensuality of breath. Every breath is completely different. 
the famous Zen story of a teacher and student rowing across. You can imagine the Zen landscape, the mist on the lake, rowing across the lake, the robes. Very. Zen tradition has good appreciation for aesthetics. Dipping of the oars. And the student complaining to her teacher about how boring it is endlessly paying attention to her breath and the teacher letting go of the oars and grabs her head and pushes it under water holds it there for a minute or so pulls it out and says how interesting was that breath So with regard to body or life in general, the tendency to check out of our experience, to go unconscious, you know, that kind of archetype of sort of absent-minded professor, just just who forgets to eat and uh, doesn't know whether it's day or night. And yet we can also find that kind of archetype in our own uh, in our own experience, the tendency to distract, to get lost, to go unconscious through sleep or through uh, whatever, whatever your unconscious support of choice is. The fridge, the TV, the bar, the, the whatever. <coughs> Not that there's anything wrong in going to those places, right? But just to see the tendency to turn away from visceral immediacy, to imagine that life is in some other realm, some abstract realm. To the, the solace of going comfortably numb. And so this practice of attending to body shows us our tendencies. And in a way that's, you know, we don't necessarily notice at the time, but in a way that's revolutionary in our consciousness. Every time we support ourselves in staying, in sensing, in landing in this immediacy of experience, we're kind of we're undoing those patterns of avoidance. And then it's a bit related, you know, I was speaking about the sense of thingness and body image. But just the way we identify with this body, the way I look out at the world through these eyes, the way I feel the, way, the world through this skin, as if that's the way it is, as if that's the truth. And the way I identify in whatever way I do informed by my history, informed by my conditioning, much of which I had no choice about, much of which is a, seems to be just an accident of biology or physiology or some other zoology, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't choose to be male. And yet... I look out as if I know something 
through this lens of maleness. I identify as that's who I am as if. That's something fixed. And when I sense the kind of the biological accident of that, you know, a couple of chromosomes or chromosomes or DNA strands or something. No, DNA strands, different DNA strands, I would have been like, I don't know, a sheep or something. <laughs> I think different chromosomes. And, you know, maybe I wouldn't be white. I wouldn't be male. I wouldn't be more or less heterosexual. And the tendency we have to look out through the eyes of my gender, my colour, my age, my sexual orientation or identity, as if that's normal. Well, it's it's normal in here, but the way normal begets a kind of narrow view to it. When we when we recognise the the the, the normalising uh, tendency of our conditioning, that it's just that it's conditioning. I didn't choose this, but in not choosing it, it's informed my experience in a way that just becomes normalised. It's fine. It's it's normal that it becomes normalised. But in attending to our experience, we're invited to grow beyond our own normalised view. And then we start to, and then our identity doesn't seem so fixed, doesn't seem so exclusive. It's, you know, and that happens in a lot of different ways. Like most of us here, I mean the vast majority of us here, are white. And for those few who are not Caucasian, not white, I hope you feel welcome. But when I look through the Gaia House program, God, it's white. Exclusively white, which I wrote to them about this year and said, What's the matter with your brochure? It's so white. But of course, I think everyone that works here is white. So then you tend to look through white eyes at the world. Most people here are probably heterosexual. And if you're not heterosexual, I hope you feel welcome here. I don't think Guy House has an overly heterosexual vibe. (laughs) Unfortunately, it tends to have a kind of asexual vibe. (laughs) If you're asexual, you probably feel really welcome. (laughs) But our culture has a kind of heteronormative view, which we tend... Those of us for whom that's the case, we tend to look through as if that's normal, normative. And in terms of that evolution beyond our own identity, if you're white and heterosexual and male, and I'm more or less all those things, then you're at a real disadvantage in this kind of evolution, because the whole world's set up to support the normative view of the white heterosexual male. And if you're not all those three things, but you're any one of them, you know, you can, you can find 
the, the normativism of that. Nothing's normal. There is no normal. It's not normal to be white. It's not normal to be heterosexual. Certainly not normal to be male. I mean, it's not abnormal either. But the, 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 what, what we do around identity that makes my experience seem normal. Because if my experience is normal, this body is normal, it, that inevitably makes a sense of exclusion. That's what uh, racism or homophobia or misogyny or any of the other uh, exclusions of another's experience is. The inability to see beyond my own normativism. So we have a history, we have a conditioning, we have a sexual identity, we have a gender. But can I get inside that in such a way that it's just the way life's arising in this location at this moment? Could very easily be different. And underneath my normative views, there's just life going on. The same life that I intuitively whoever the eye is, I intuitively sense is going on in all people, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of uh, any of those different ways of identifying. There's joy and there's sorrow and there's difficulty and there's struggle and there's depth of feeling and there's the longing of the heart. And we know that that's universal. And then, in knowing that our experience of body isn't just this body here, we start to know more clearly, obviously, that that it's not really about my experience or your experience or them, whoever they are, and their experience. There's just experience. Physical experience, emotional experience. Mysterious, alive human experience. And there's no, nothing's outside of that. Everything I see, everyone I see, all the world that I see, is the arising of human experience. Sensation, vibration, emotion, is the arising of human experience. This visceral bodily experience that started out as this crude idea of a thing, turns out to be a field of experience that doesn't have an edge to it. There's no edge in seeing. There's no edge in hearing. There's no edge in feeling. There's no edge to the sense of being here. 
there's a center. There's a sense of center. The sense of cent- the center of being here is hereness itself. But that hereness has no edge, no boundary. We inhabit our experience arises in the body of life. Boundlessly. Freely. <coughs> fluidly. Mysteriously. And our practice is life's invitation to know this fluidity, to live this freedom, to abide as the body of life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.